my name is Jackie Gray, if we haven't met before. I'm a member of this congregation, as are my parents, John and Nancy, sitting at the side there. I'm also a, a lecturer in theology and biblical studies at Alpha Crucis College, and uh, I should warn you, normally when I lecture, we go for three-hour blocks. So I hope you brought your lunch and uh, settle in. No, I won't go that long. <laughs> but this morning, we're going to look at a treasured scripture Chapter Isaiah chapter 6. In fact, we've actually been singing this scripture all morning in our worship time together. But to, to put this passage as we turn to look at it together, to put this passage in context, we actually have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, in, in Genesis chapter 12. Because we see there God called a childless couple, Abraham and Sarah. God made a covenant with them. A covenant is, is a solemn agreement. And God said that he would bless them and that he would give them children and that through their family, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham and Sarah indeed had a son and they grew and that son grew into a great nation. But they became enslaved in Egypt, as, as Bronwyn reminded us before. And, but God delivered them by his powerful hand, he delivered them in a miraculous event known as the Exodus. You've probably seen the cartoon movie, The Prince of Egypt, to remind us of that. But in rescuing them from slavery, God gave them instructions in how to live. In the Old Testament, they were called the law. God gave them how they were to act between one another. How are they to behave and live in community together in a way that would honour and glorify him? God then placed them in their own land where they lived and they were called to serve God in that place of Israel. But God had told them, he warned them before, that if they obeyed, if they obeyed that law, those instructions, then they would flourish in the land. But if they rejected him, if they rejected God, if they rejected God's instructions, then God would send an invading army to remove them from the land. So the Israels dwelt in the land together for hundreds of years. The kingdom divided into to north and south. Sometimes they did well. A whole lot of time they didn't do so well. And so to remind them of their covenant, of their solemn promise that they made, that they would serve God with all of their heart, God sent the prophets. They were spokespeople. They were commissioned by God to speak God's message to that community, exactly what they needed to hear at the right time in the right place. And Isaiah was one of these prophets. In the book named Isaiah, the prophet tells us that in the year that King Uzziah died, he says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. King Uzziah was a good king. He was a king in, in the south, in, in Judah. And although he, he had his problems overall, he was, was pretty good. And when a good king died, the people got anxious. What would their new ruler be like? Change is difficult and change, this change in particular would have a huge effect upon their lives. Now for us, when a queen or a king dies, it's, we might, it's not such a big impact, is it? We might feel a bit sad, but it doesn't really change our daily life. We have a coronation 
coming up. I didn't even know. I had to look up the date when it was. You know, that's how little interested I really am. But anyway, we'll have a new king, but it's unlikely to impact our daily lives that much. And so this was not the case in Bible times. When the kings in the ancient world, their reach was in every part of their daily life. And so when a king died, it was a time of great concern. So the people of Isaiah's time were concerned when King Uzziah died. What would the next king be like? Will they be good or bad? Uh, I used to share an office with a, a friend, a colleague, and she taught English to overseas students. And every half hour, there'd be a new student. And she'd go, every time she would kind of greet the student and she'd say, how are you today? Are you good or bad or so-so? <laughs> Uzziah was a good king, but what would the next king be like? Will they be good, bad or so-so? And so we see that it was a time of anxiety because the human king had died. But Isaiah has a vision. He sees the heavenly king on the throne and he realizes it doesn't matter what is going on in this human realm because God is sovereign, God is on the throne and God is in control. The king who was and who is and who will always be is on the throne. And so Isaiah shares with us his vision of the king. The prophet not only sees God for himself, but shares his testimony with us in chapter 6. And in doing so, he invites us into this vision. He invites us to see this heavenly king together, the heavenly king in his beauty, in his glory and majesty. And so it can be our vision too. This king that Isaiah sees also gives him a cause, and it's our cause as well. So we're going to look at this passage together and read about Isaiah's vision and the outcome of his vision. And we'll see, first of all, who is the king? Secondly, what is our response? Well, what's Isaiah's response and our response to this vision of the king? And what is the king's cause? So let's read Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, just as we've been singing this morning. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Who is the king? We're introduced by Isaiah through his vision that he shares with us. We're introduced to this king. And Isaiah describes him for us. What does he see? What do we see? This king is high and exalted. Isaiah recalls the the great sense of the height of God. He's truly huge and magnificent. And this great height emphasize how far above the human realm over creation and the created order is this creator God. God is far above us in every way, in perfection, in goodness, in grace. God is without beginning and without end, and God is without rival. He is called the most high God. That's what Isaiah sees, and he sees God seated on a throne. God is king. He is sovereign, seated 
on this throne. And of course, we know that God is spirit and so doesn't exist in a body like us, or, nor is he contained to the human realm. But graciously, God revealed himself to Isaiah in a way that our human capacity could comprehend and understand. And that is, God is king. The throne is where the king sits. And he sits in judgment, not just a figurehead uh, or a symbolic figure like a king or queen for us today, but he is the supreme power and supreme ruler in our world and beyond. Isaiah also sees that his train fills, just the train of his robe fills the temple. Now we don't know if Isaiah is actually in the temple or not or in, uh, in, just envisioning it, but probably a bit of both, but he glimpses the heavenly throne room of God. And in this throne room, Isaiah sees just the little bit of the bottom of the robe of God's garment. Again, emphasizing that hugeness, that all that Isaiah can see in his field of vision is just a little, little tiny bit of the garment. It would be like us seeing God in this auditorium. Could you imagine how huge God is if all we can see is just you know, the, bottom, the bottom of his garment there? And that's all that fills this great building. Because God cannot be contained in our auditoriums or in our boxes. Such is the bigness of God, and we are so little in comparison. It gives us a bit of perspective of, of God's greatness, doesn't it? And he had attendants who were serving him, and these attendants were called seraphim. In this heavenly throne room that Isaiah describes, there are these attendants who are ready and waiting to do exactly what the sovereign God wants them to do. Their posture is one of service. They were actively waiting, ready for the word of God to act. And these creatures are called seraphim, which literally means burning ones. They are like fire. Pretty scary probably to see them. And part of their active service was worship. They were calling back and forth. Actually, they were roaring back and forth to one another in worship and reverence of God, saying, roaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The essential characteristic of the God we serve is holiness. Now, we sing about it, but what is it? To be holy is to be perfect, to be pure, to be consumed by love. To be holy is to be set apart. God is different. He's set apart from creation because he is our creator. He's set apart from creation because he's eternal and not dependent on this creation for his existence. And yet we are dependent on God for our very breath. We usually think of perfection as without mistake or without flaw, and it does include that, but perfection is more about completeness and about wholeness. God is complete. God lacks nothing. We lack so much, don't we? We lack air. We need breath. We need food. We need water. We need shelter. And the list goes on of all the things that we need, but God needs and is complete. God lacks nothing. The whole earth is filled with his glory. These burning creatures sang out. What fills the earth is not our own predicaments or pandemics or problems, although they exist. What fills the earth, Isaiah tells us, is the glory of God. 
that when we look around our world, God wants us to see his glory, his glory and magnificence in creation and in one another. Isaiah is caught up in this overwhelming vision of the presence of God and he's overpowered by God's majesty. Even the temple building itself cannot contain the presence of God as it shakes and fills with smoke, the very symbols or representation of of God's presence that we find all throughout the Bible. So who is this king? The New Testament is very clear that this person, the king who Isaiah saw in his throne, is none other than Jesus Christ. Because while God is spirit, again, doesn't exist in a body, God, the eternal son, took on human form in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 tells us he is the image of the invisible God. John 12.41 says, uh, and this is Jesus saying, Isaiah, John 12.41 sorry, says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So Isaiah saw Jesus' glory. So this king on the throne is Jesus. But the glorification of Jesus was not just as a a great human ruler or a wonderful teacher or, or person. John 12 also tells us that the Son of Man must be lifted up. And we know Jesus was lifted up onto a cross where he died, crowned as King of the Jews, but dying a slave's death so that we and all creation might be reconciled to God we sang the song this morning all hail King Jesus all hail the Lord of heaven and earth and Isaiah's vision of the king was a vision of Jesus so how does Isaiah respond to this vision of God when we encounter God we not only get a glimpse of who God is and a glimpse of God's majesty we also get a glimpse of who we are. Woe to me, I cried, said Isaiah. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. What is Isaiah's response to this vision? What is our response? Well, Isaiah responds saying, I'm ruined. There is a tradition in the Old Testament that no one could see God and live. So he was, you know, it's not surprising that Isaiah thought that that was it. He's dead. <laughs> so Isaiah is terrified of this direct and dangerous vision of God. He thought it's all over. And yet by God's grace, he's alive. He says, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. While God has revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, he is still awesome in the true sense of the word. He inspires awe in us and we are confronted with the beauty and the majesty and the holiness and the purity of God and we cannot help but see how we fall short. Isaiah overwhelmed by the perfection of the king, realizes his own inadequacy and he confesses his sin. Sin is falling short, it's missing the mark and he's fallen short of God's standards. He realizes it in this encounter with God. He realizes he doesn't belong. He doesn't belong in God's presence because he's fallen short of the standard. That both he 
and his community are unclean. Isaiah's response is our response. We're ruined. So here we have a problem. We recognize our own sin and our own uncleanness, our own misguided importance when we thought we were the one on the throne uh, in the center of the universe. So how can we solve this problem of being unholy before a holy God? We can't, but God can. God provides the solution, and he does it in a very unexpected way. Now, I teach Isaiah, I've been teaching Isaiah over 20 years, and I've always puzzled, why does God cleanse him in this unusual way? Why does God take, you know, get these fiery creatures to take tongs? Like, they're fiery creatures, and they've got to use a tong to pick up the burning coal. Like, that's how hot this coal is. And they carry it over, and they kind of blast it on Isaiah's lips. Why? Why cleanse him in that way? There was already a mechanism for cleansing. There was the the sacrificial system that they used to get right with God where they would sacrifice animals on their behalf. Um, And what I've realized is that it's easy to go through the rituals. It's easy to perform actions and think that by us performing our actions, we've been made right with God. But it's not the actions. It was never the actions of the sacrificial system. It was God who saved them. It wasn't doing anything. It was God that did it. I mean, God still used those actions as a symbolic representative, but it was God who saved them. And so here for Isaiah, it is God who saves him. We see that Isaiah's sin is taken away by God. God saves. That's actually what Isaiah's name means. It means Yah, Yahweh, saves. He'd been called that all his life and maybe he didn't know what it meant. But now in this encounter with God, he truly knows and understands and comprehends that God is the one who saves. I hope that all of us have an encounter with God where we truly know in the depths of our heart, in the depths of our being, the saving grace of God for each of our lives. Fortunately for, for us today, we don't have to offer sacrifices like in the Old Testament because Jesus came as the saviour of the world to offer himself as a sacrifice on our behalf. And God sent the Son to die for us. God gave himself to save us. Again, God saves. It's an act of his grace. God's saving uh, resulted for Isaiah in his transformation. He was a totally different person. He wasn't cowering in the corner in the presence of God. We see now he stands boldly in God's presence. And that's what Christ does for us. Because humans, we've fallen short. And we require cleansing and transformation to glorify God. Because we've rejected God. We put ourselves on the throne, not God. And it's when we get off that throne, realize that we're not the center of the universe that God is the one who saves us. We look to him. We are not only saved, but we are transformed as a result. And God offers that same grace and transformation for each of us today. But Isaiah's vision doesn't end there because the king that has cleansed and transformed him has a cause. And that cause is to invite Isaiah's community to also be cleansed and transformed. 
It continues on in Isaiah 6. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. It's a really difficult passage. Then I said, well, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And although a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. As the terebinth and oak leave stumps, when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Now that Isaiah is cleansed, he is standing confidently in God's presence. He belongs. He hears the voice of God asking, challenging, using the, the kingly royal language, whom will I send? Who will go for us? The king has a cause. And that cause is not only that Isaiah will know him, but Isaiah's people will know him as well, will acknowledge him, and that Isaiah's community will turn back to God and be saved. But how will they hear unless someone speaks? And how will someone speak to them unless they go? Who will go for us? Whom will I send? Isaiah puts up his hand, he hears the call and he responds. The all-sufficient king, the one who doesn't actually need anything, reaches out and invites us to participate with him. God graciously includes us in his cause. And that cause is to speak and to be a, a vessel's spokespeople of that same message of the goodness, the holiness, and the grace of God. Because to not only experience the saving grace and transformation of life, uh, of your life by God, but also God calls us to invite our friends invite our family, invite our community to have this same experience. And so Isaiah is commissioned, as all of us actually, as Christians, are commissioned. We're commissioned by Jesus to take that good news. But what's the message specifically that Isaiah will take? He's told from the outset that he's going to have a difficult task, that he'll be confronting his own community with the message of God. And that God is king, God is on the throne, not them. His message is they've failed God's standards and they've gone their own way. And that they need to come back to God. And Isaiah is told in this passage at the outset that the people will resist the message. They will not listen because they are obstinate. They don't want to hear, they don't want to change. And Isaiah is told, the more you speak, keep hearing, keep listening, the more the people will block their ears and harden their hearts. It's a pretty tough gig for a preacher, isn't it? The more you speak, the more they're not going to listen. Wow. <laughs> They'll keep rejecting you. But Isaiah was to persevere, keep on reaching out, hoping they will turn and they will be healed. 
In fact, in the book of Acts, Paul uses this verse to help explain why his own community rejected the message of Jesus and why he had the cause then to preach Jesus to the non-Jewish community. But as the book of Isaiah continues, we know this message was rejected. While King Uzziah had been a good king, the next king, the king they were all concerned about, the next human king, was called Ahaz. The next main one was Ahaz. And in chapter 7 of Isaiah, we read how Ahaz rejected Isaiah's message and rejected God. And yet, Isaiah spoke to him again and again. He knew Ahaz would reject the message. The human king would reject him. And yet he persevered. Isaiah told them exactly what they were doing wrong. It was a very uncomfortable truth for the people to hear. Maybe you know someone like that who's not willing to listen. Whether it's politics or sport, the more you talk with them, the more they get obstinate in their view. And that's what happened for Isaiah. In chapter 1, he said to the people, You lift up your hands in worship, but your hands are covered in blood. The blood of the orphans, the blood of the, the widows, because you are exploiting them in your corrupt justice systems. Your systems are not justice, they are unjust and you are doing wrong. He challenges them again and again about the social injustices, but they wouldn't listen. In chapter 5, he says, you leaders, you are drunkards. You are champions of mixing drinks, but not in doing justice. Sounds like a few Aussies on a Saturday night, doesn't it? Champions of mixing drinks. Uh, But Isaiah said to his people, though your sins are like scarlet, you can be washed as white as snow if you turn to God. Yet this rejection by others did not stop Isaiah from speaking out. He was resilient. Some of us have also experienced that. We've shared our faith with friends and family and they've rejected it. Sometimes they've rejected us as well. When we speak Jesus, our message will be rejected by some. And Isaiah reminds us not to look for the affirmation of others, but to be faithful in speaking out. And that doesn't mean that we don't be wise with our message. We need the wisdom of the Holy Spirit to know when to speak and when to be silent. We need the guidance of God's Spirit that He's placed within all of us um, that we need to speak at the right time because sometimes people don't listen to us because we've spoken out of turn. We've been unwise with our words. But sometimes people don't listen because they've hardened their hearts to God. And we need discernment to know the difference. Isaiah then said, how long? For Isaiah, he kept warning the people again and again of the consequences of their actions, of their refusal to heed God. And Isaiah was told that judgment would come on the people in the Old Testament because of their obstinate rejection of God. And that judgment would be like a beautiful tree being cut down, leaving a stump. And we know historically that judgment became a reality in the exile by the Babylonian army that destroyed their cities and their community again, as Bronwyn reminded us, and took them away from their land. Yet even before it happened, God promised he would not abandon his people. His glory fills the earth. God promised he would restore them. And that from that stump of a broken tree, a shoot would come up. 
We've seen the fires devastating uh, across New South Wales and across Australia. And we've hopefully seen from those burnt out trees, the, the new life, the sprouts coming up. The community would be restored. And from that shoot, from that tree, the saviour of the world, Jesus Christ, would come. He would die on a tree that we would have life for whoever believes in him. But you know, even though Isaiah's message was rejected by the king, by the human king and the leaders of their community, there were some that believed. And some of those believers included Isaiah's own family, his children. At his commissioning in Isaiah 6, as we read, Isaiah stood alone in that vision, but he said, here am I, send me. But two chapters later, in Isaiah 8, verse 18, even though the king and all the others had rejected him, Isaiah said, here am I, and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Isaiah returned back to that place of his calling on Mount Zion, the place of his encounter with the most holy God and said, not only here am I, but also here am I and the children the Lord has given me. Isaiah's children join him and stand with him in his cause. For some of you here today, there is a grief that you stand here worshipping the king, embracing his cause, but your children or some of your family are not with you. Your children have rejected the message of Jesus. Maybe your spouse has rejected the message of Jesus and maybe your children have even rejected you. If that is you, I want to pray with you this morning. And if you feel brave enough that, yes, that's my situation, I invite you to stand just where you are, to lift your hands, and we're going to pray for you. And we're going to pray for your children that they will turn back and that they will stand with you in the worship and the cause of the King. And that they, like Isaiah, would encounter God. So if you say, yes, that is me. My children have rejected God. My, some of my family have rejected God. And I want to see them standing with me. I invite you to stand now. And we're going to pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your saving grace. We thank you that you've called us into a beautiful relationship with you. And we say, here I am, Lord, send me. But Lord, we look to our side and there's some people missing, children or a spouse. Lord, we ask for your grace to be outpoured upon those people, our loved ones that are missing here. And that we would, Lord, that, that they would encounter you in a magnificent way. They will realize they've missed the mark and that they will, in that encounter with you, turn and be healed. Lord, we ask you to work in their hearts and lives. We ask you to do a mighty work in the lives of our family, that families will be restored and children's hearts will be turned back to their fathers and mothers. And Lord, we pray for each person standing, that you'll give them the wisdom, you'll give them the words, you'll give them the right time to share their heart with their loved ones. Because Lord, you say, you commission us to your cause. You invite us to participate uh, in bringing the good news of your kingdom to our loved ones. And so Lord, I pray for courage and boldness 
the wisdom of the Holy Spirit for each person standing here, that they'll know exactly that you have opened the door at the right time and that those hearts will not be blocked, those hearts will not be hardened to hear your word, but they'll be able to speak life and truth and hope and grace into their families. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please keep standing and everyone else, let's stand up. Just